Palm Sunday marks not just the beginning of what Christians refer to as Holy Week, but also a change in the demeanor of Jesus. It's hard to uh, know this as we um, every year tend to just jump right into the Gospels for Palm Sunday and Easter. Um, And so we're not following along with the story. But you need to know that throughout the public ministry of Jesus, there was a shyness to him, um, a concealment of his glory. That's not to say that he hasn't been glorious. He has. He's been very glorious in the Gospels. However, it's, it seems to go unrecognized. And he certainly does not receive the glory and praise that belongs to him. When we read the Gospels, what happens is we, especially those of us who love and follow Jesus, we find ourselves wanting him to strut a bit, wanting others to recognize just how glorious he is, wanting him to receive his praise. But instead, what we find is that he is largely unrecognizable. Even when people do recognize him, he asks them not to tell anybody. Instead, what we find in the life and ministry of Jesus is a man who is doubted, who is criticized, who is challenged. Even his own disciples fail to appreciate him, fail to recognize him as they should, fail to praise him as he deserves. And so what happens in the Gospels is the Gospel stories leave the reader um, desperate for that moment when Jesus is finally recognized in all of his glory and finally gets what he deserves. This is true of every great story. When you look at the great stories that we love, the novels and films, not the depressing ones that tried their best to give a, uh, a realistic account of the way things are, but the stories that we tell of the way we hope and wish things are. These stories that we love, they always have these moments of greatness for the hero of the story, the moment of greatness for the protagonist, where um, if the story is told rightly, there's this anticipation that builds for the hero of the story to have their moment. It could be a superhero movie. It could be an epic drama. There's always this moment of greatness where the hero is finally on display for everyone to see. And the hero is finally celebrated as they truly deserve. That's the part of the story we love the most. The part that gives us all the feels, so to speak. And that's what Palm Sunday is. That's what's going on in the story of Jesus. Finally, King Jesus is recognized and praised. Finally, Jesus receives the honor and glory that is due his name. And yet, at the same time, there's something really off about Palm Sunday. This isn't your normal moment of glory. Because quite honestly, it's not that great of a moment. It's actually a fairly unimpressive moment when you get into the passage as we will. But, in the end, what we will see is that the unimpressiveness of this moment only adds to the greatness of this moment because it is in his lowliness 
that we see his greatness. I want us to observe two things from our story today. I want us to see Jesus receiving what he deserves, but by receiving what we deserve. So he's going to receive what he deserves, but by receiving what we deserve. But let's start by watching Jesus finally get his moment and receive the praise he deserves. Again, 37, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, now again, if you're familiar with the story of Jesus' life, you don't see these moments in the Gospels. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Don't let them talk that way about you. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Out of everything that Jesus says in the Gospels, that right there might be my favorite. That's, that's the closest Jesus ever comes to talking a little trash. Again, if you're familiar with Jesus, you know he's not one for self-aggrandizing. He doesn't do this. In fact, there is a noticeable shyness to his Messiahship, always constantly trying to keep his identity hidden, constantly pushing back on popularity. Whenever he heals someone and they say, whoa, I know who you are, he says, yes, but don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody. Keep it a secret. Now it's there, it's there if you have eyes to see it. It's hidden in his parables, it's implied in his actions, it's subtle in his claims, but Jesus is never just outright explicit with who he is. Nor does he ever demand the praise that belongs to him. But like I said, Palm Sunday marks a noticeable change. And quite honestly, it's, it's awesome to see for those of us who love Jesus. The Pharisees say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. As they should, because the disciples are calling him the king of heaven. The one who comes in the name of the Lord. They're calling him God. It's blasphemy. Pharisees, rebuke them. Tell them to stop calling you this. Now, the Jesus we are used to would have responded to the Pharisees with maybe a probing, um, leading question that gets at their, the meaning or, or maybe a parable that's kind of mysteriously hiding his identity but challenging the Pharisees. That's the Jesus we're used to. But this time, Jesus finally says to the Pharisees what we have been dying for him to say all along. I tell you, if they were to be quiet, I would have these stones praise me. These stones would cry out. No more hidden parables. No more suggestive questions. He is straight up owning his greatness and glory. If they weren't praising me, then rocks would praise me. But I will be praised. And we love it. But here's the question we should probably ask. Is that right? Perhaps it's fun to see our Savior strut a bit. But isn't he taking things too far? Maybe the Pharisees have a point here. For any of us to act this way, for me to act this way, for you to act this way, would be the height of arrogance or just delusion. The, 
the, the epitome of narcissism or the epitome of insanity. I've listened to a podcast from a historian this week who said, you know, um, in my professional opinion, when I'm looking at the life of Jesus, um, he had comes across to me as someone who in our day would be institutionalized. And that's true. If I were to go around calling myself God and you were to say, hey, settle down, I said, well, better be careful or these rocks are going to start praising me. You'd have me institutionalized, as you should. This vision of Jesus should make us feel very uncomfortable. It certainly did for C.S. Lewis. During Lewis's atheism, he, he wrestled with what, we, what, what, he, what he saw as the vanity of God. It was a big issue for him. And it should be for us, particularly in the Psalms, that say it is right to praise the Lord where God goes as far as to demand the praise of people. And Lewis saw that as vanity in its highest form. It seems like God is this insecure, um, self-obsessed deity that is in need of constant compliments from people. Lewis, this is historically contextual, Lewis said, it sounds like an old woman who's insecure and needs praise. And here, Jesus is acting the exact same way. Receiving praise and even going so far as to say, if I don't get it from them, I'll get it from the rocks, but I will be praised. Who does he think he is? Well, God is who he thinks he is. And what Lewis discovered and what we must discover is that God must act like this. God must demand praise for God to be God. God is the only one for whom it is virtuous to love himself above all else, to seek his own glory above all else, to demand he be praised above all else. These things that are so ugly in us are virtuous in God. What is idolatry? Simply put, it's to love anything more than God. Well, if you're God, what is idolatrous for you? To love anything more than yourself. For instance, if God were to place me at the center of his affection and of his love and of his heart and of his motivation and of his devotion, if God were to say, I'm all about Robert or you or even everyone he would be breaking the first and greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Or take the first of the Ten Commandments, have no other gods before me. Well, God will not break his own commandments. God shall have no other gods before him. This is why jealousy is appropriate for God and wrong for me. If I am jealous... It means that I want your affection, your attention, your praise, your love, your desire, your admiration, your devotion. I want you all for myself. But the problem is I'm not worthy of such things. Only God is worthy of such things. In fact, if I truly love you, then I have to want what is best for you. And at the end of the day, I'm not ultimately best for you. So my jealousy for you is actually seeking your ruin but God is best for you. God is the one for whom you were made. 
So his jealousy is his love, for it seeks your flourishing. He is worthy of your praise, love, affection, devotion. And so he rightfully, lovingly is jealous for you. Now, take that God-centered perspective, which is so key to all theological work. Take that God-centered paradigm shift and view this passage through its lens. What is Jesus doing here? Exactly what he should be doing. Exactly what he should. He is not a deranged narcissist. He's acting like your God. On Palm Sunday, when he receives praise and even demands praise, Jesus is finally getting his due. He is finally getting what he deserves, what he must have, which is also the most loving thing he can do. But still, and it's right to push back on this, it still seems to go against the Jesus that we have all gotten to know in the Gospels, the Jesus we're used to. Not one obsessed with his own glory and his own praise, but one obsessed with sinners. I thought Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. That's what he said. He did not say, I have come to be praised. He said, I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. I thought his obsession is his love for us, not his love for himself, for his own glory. How do we reconcile the two, this vision of Jesus who receives praise, demands praise, even the rocks will praise me if I don't have your praise, but at the same time, Seems, that the, seems to be obsessed with sinners. How do we reconcile these two obsessions of Jesus? Well, the two ambitions come together. His obsession to receive praise and his obsession to save sinners, they come together into glorious good news when we see how it is that Jesus has chosen to be glorified when we see how it is that Jesus has chosen to gain the glory that is due his name. That's where Palm Sunday and Holy Week is ultimately taking us. We've seen in our passes, Jesus get what he deserves. Now, let's look at how. And it's by receiving what we deserve. And we've seen thus far that Jesus wants to be praised, indeed must be praised, But here's the key question. Praised for what? He will be famous. He must be famous. But what will he be famous for? The blessed answer is found in the famous irony of Palm Sunday. If you weren't familiar with the story, perhaps you're not familiar with the story. I read from you I read for you verses 36 through 38. I wonder what would come to mind if you weren't familiar with the story. Let's let's try it. Pretend like you don't know the, the scene. Let me just read these words. What would come to mind? As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. How would you imagine that? How would you envision that scene? Perhaps a king seated on a throne, 
carried on the shoulders of servants, perhaps seated on a stallion leading a royal military parade. These are the images that come to mind. I mean, look at verse 38. This is some serious praise. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. You know what that means? This is the Lord's king. This is the king of the kingdom of God. In other words, this is the king of kings. This is the Lord of lords. They shout to him, glory in the highest. Think about that word. In the highest, meaning this is glory in its highest form. The very fullness of the glory of God who is riding into Jerusalem, the glorious capital of the city of God on Eeyore. The irony of this day. There's been some scholarship trying to turn the donkey into an animal that represents kingship recently. I read one of them this week, but it's, it's true that ancient kings were known for riding donkeys, but only as an ironic boast. In essence, kings at times would ride donkeys saying, my kingdom is so dominant. I am so powerful. There is no threat to my throne. So much so that I can go about on a donkey without fear. The donkey was not associated with power and nobility. It was referred to in the first century as a beast of burden. It was associated with carrying things that nobody else wanted to carry. And besides the donkey, the other parts of Palm Sunday are not fitting the praise of the King of Kings. His company is not royal. It's, it says his disciples are the ones crying out. Who's that? These are the outcasts. These are the poor. These are the prostitutes, the sinners, the tax collectors. Not to mention his ragtag group of disciples that he's gathered. His praise comes not from powerful military salute, but from the lips of children. What's happening here? What kind of glory is this? Well, what's happening is exactly what the prophet said would happen in our Old Testament reading. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, gentle, mounted on a donkey. He tells God's people to rejoice Because when their king does come to them, he will not come in the posture of wrath and judgment, but in humility and meekness. And that is really good news for every single person here. God, who as we saw in the first point, must be famous, has chosen to be famous for his gentleness. God, as we saw in the first point, who must be praised, has chosen to be praised for his grace. And this is why Jesus, the fullness of God's glory, has waited for this moment to receive and demand his praise. What is it about this moment that changes everything? Why is it that up until this point, he's been shy about praise and now he's willing to receive it all? Look again at the beginning of verse 37. Those details are important. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is the hill outside Jerusalem. 
It was viewed as the official boundary to the city. And the point of verse 37's details is that now there is no turning back. He's all in on what awaits. He is descending down into the destiny of Holy Week. He does not ride into town to conquer. He rides into town to die. And that's what he will do. We'll be back here five days to contemplate the reason he has come. In five days, he will hang. But he will hang as a substitute. In five days, he will receive not the praise that he deserves, but the scorn that I deserve. What do I deserve? Friends, you have no idea. Except that you probably do. (laughs) Because it's there in you as well. I know it's there. Of course, like all of us, you have learned to play the game very well. You're good at the religious game. Of course, like all of us, you have learned the dance of social grace. Of course, like all of us, you are trained experts at at moral camouflage and wearing the religious mask. Of course, we've all been trained in those ways and we're all pretty good at it, but it's there. It is there lurking in your thought life. It's there polluting every intention behind every action, even the most noblest actions. It's there twisting your desires. It's there corrupting the words that come out of your mouth. And probably it's there manifesting itself in your private life. You can hide and you can keep it down, but probably alone, whatever it is comes out. And at times, certainly, it breaks through for others to see, specifically those closest to you. It's there. And it is as rancid in you as it is in me. And where it belongs is smack dab in the middle of hell's fury, receiving for all eternity the worst that hell has to offer. And you can disagree with that diagnosis for you. That's fine. But don't tell me it's wrong for me because I know it's right for me. I know what I deserve. Which is why this week melts me to tears every year. As I watch again my Savior riding into Jerusalem bearing the weight of what I deserve and carrying what I deserve all the way to the cross to fully and finally receive what I deserve. And that, praise His name, is the chosen way for Him to get what He deserves, His eternal praise. His cross is His chosen glory. His humiliation is the way He has chosen to find His exaltation. The depths of His sacrifice is His chosen heights of praise. Let me be very clear here. This is very important. God did not have to do it this way. It did not have to go the way of Holy Week. This sermon 
could and quite honestly should be, here are my two points. Jesus gets what he deserves by giving us what we deserve. That should be the sermon. Because that's the other part of the stories we love, right? It's not just the hero finding its greatness. It's not just the protagonist finally being realized for his or her greatness. Typically a good story, that happens at the expense of the antagonist, right? Do you not celebrate the moment in every story, not just when the good guy gets what he deserves, but also when the bad guy finally gets what they deserve? And usually the climax of every good story is when those two come together. The good guy gets what he deserves by giving the bad guy what he deserves. That moment when good triumphs over evil, where the protagonist finally has the last say over the antagonist, who has been the villain throughout the story. That's the climactic of moment of, of, of vindication and victory that we find so satisfying in the stories that we love. Well, you do realize in the great drama of history that we're the bad guys. We're the ones who have rebelled. We're the ones who have brought ruin and misery into this story. We're the ones who have exalted ourselves and hurt everyone else. Brothers and sisters, we're the bad guys in the story. And the story is pining after our punishment. Heaven and all of creation would rejoice if the good guy finally triumphed over the bad guys. Oh, how glorious that would be if King Jesus, after generations and generations and cultures after cultures and ages after ages of being scorned and defamed by the very ones he created and cared for, after the ones that he gives breath to use that breath to despise him, the ones he gives strength to use that strength to sin against him. Oh, how good of a story it would be if finally he gets what he deserves, vindication, by giving us what we deserve, condemnation. That's a good story. That should be the story. And that would be a story that heaven would celebrate. But that's not the story. Blessed be his name. He has chosen a different pathway to be praised. Indeed, Jesus rides into Jerusalem to get what he deserves, eternal praise, only not by giving us what we deserve, but by receiving what we deserve. So that we all say, hail our humble king. That's the point. In this way, his enemies end up praising him. The only thing more glorious than defeating his enemies is winning his enemies and gaining the praise of his very enemies. And that's what Jesus has managed to do. Winning over the very ones he should be triumphing over. And so our application for today and moving us now into this most sacred week is really simple. Praise him. Praise Jesus. He has done it for his own praise. So give him what he wants. Give him what he deserves for what he has done.
Give unto Jesus what Jesus deserves, the fullness of your praise. And I do mean fullness. Let us honor him, not just with our lips, while our hearts, our deeds, our lives fail to honor him and glorify him. There's going to be so much praise in this room this week. Our songs, our, our, our prayers, our confessions, it will all be praising unto Jesus. But please, please, let it not just be empty ceremony where we come together and sing our praises. Let it be a life consecrated in praise to him. Where, here's, here's my question. Holy Week is a time of, of reflection and self-assessment. should be every year. Where are you withholding from Jesus the glory due his name? Search your lives for any area where you are failing to praise your king. Where you are failing to bow the knee to King Jesus. It could be anything. Your sexuality, your money, your appetites, your discontentment, your your bitterness, your laziness, your pride, your vanity... Ask Jesus to show you any area where you are withholding the glory due his name. And I promise his spirit will be faithful to convict. And when he does convict, apologize to your king and then give him what he deserves from you, your praise. Your sacrifice of praise. It will be a sacrifice. Repentance always is. But it's a sacrifice of praise unto Jesus who deserves your praise. I can't think of a better time than this week to recommit ourselves to Jesus in every way, to praise him, not just with our lips in this special Holy Week services, but with our lives. He has received what we deserve. Let us give him what he deserves. Let me pray. Lord, as we come now to uh, your sacrament that demonstrates what you have done for us, that demonstrates your willingness not to defeat us but to save us that demonstrates your commitment to um, to gain a name for yourself and be praised because of your grace I pray that it would fill our hearts and it would overflow into what you demand and what you deserve our praise our worship our lives holy consecrated unto you, glorifying you, Jesus, in everything that we say and do. Lord, give us that type of singular devotion to the one who deserves it. We pray in your name.